Hey, this is Peter Bell, one of the co-hosts of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, and the following is a sermon from our hopeful church plant, Santa Ana Reformed. We are under the oversight of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde and meet at 2 p.m. at Davis Elementary in Santa Ana, California. You can find us at the foot of the downtown Orange County Santa Ana Water Tower, as well as on our YouTube channel at Santa Ana Reformed and our Twitter handle at Santa Ana URC. Our address is 1405 Flower Street, Santa Ana, California, 92701. Enjoy the sermon and may the gospel of Jesus Christ dwell in you richly. Receiving a gift can be rather difficult. Think about it. Though we love receiving gifts, there tends to be this unavoidable burden we place ourselves when we get gifts. Especially here in Santa Ana, there's a culture of both gift giving and gift receiving. You're given a gift for graduation, baby showers, birthdays, holidays, dinners, or just simply being a family member. But there's a funny thing that happens once you receive a gift. You sometimes feel this immediate burden to show your thanks. Most often by giving or by thinking about what you're going to give in return. How can I return the favor? Or feeling like you, you owe something to the gift giver. Especially in community-oriented community or community-centered cultures like Santa Ana, like where we live, this feeling can be rather intense. And though most of the time the giver doesn't expect anything in return, there can be times that the gift giver, those who give you a gift, exploit it. And this is, this is not new. Especially at the time of Paul's writing, gift giving was used as a form of obligating receivers. Now you owe me something. I gave you something nice, now you owe me something. I gave you this, now you owe me. Not unlike that family member or friend you never really talked to, gives you something, and you wonder, what's, what's your angle? Well, what, what, do you, what do you want from me? Why are you giving me this for free? This, this, got, this has some string attached, right? And in today's passage, Paul describes this gift of Christ's righteousness to those who believe. And it requires nothing in return. He's not asking things back from you as if we can repay him. And this, this is as hard for the Galatians to accept as it is for us to accept today. Like, well, surely we owe you something, right? And Paul builds this after talking about this distinction between earning righteousness through doing the law, so you kind of feel like you've got something, and earning righteousness through the gift of faith, which can be a lot harder to receive. And this week, Paul describes why this is so hard to accept. We didn't actually do anything to receive this but incredibly freeing to believe. And we'll see this through three points. The first is separated by sin. The law rightly separated you from God and from man. Because it requires the end, or to earn standing before both, before both God and man. Second is coming of faith. The law also pointed though, to the substance of faith. It didn't just stop at the law. The one who would do what we experience, but we could never do. 
And last is united by Christ. This gift, which requires nothing in return, there's nothing we can give back in return, unites us to Christ and fellow believers, regardless of our backgrounds, and it does this by faith. My prayer is this becomes clearer throughout. Though you were formally separated from God and one another by the law, you are now united to Christ by faith. And you'll hear this by first hearing what actually separated you to begin with. The first point, separated by sin. After spending about 30 verses treating the distinction between the law and faith, or you could say the law and the gospel, Paul asks a critical question to begin verse 19. And it kind of makes sense. Why then the law? If it's seemingly so bad and all it does is separate us, why did, we, why did he put it in? If the law is so bad, why did and does the law still exist? And he answers himself by saying in so many words, kind of against what we think, the law exists to increase your sin. That's why it's there. You may be thinking, hold, hold up. God gave us the law to drive us even deeper into this sin hole. I thought God was good and doesn't like sin. So why would he add the law if he wants to increase sin if he doesn't like sin? Yes, God doesn't cause you to sin, but God's law exposes your sin. The more detailed the law, and we know this just from reading law ourselves, the more detailed, the more it points out, the more it increases what we know is true of us, the more sin it exposes. And that's, that's why the law is this. It's, it's what the law is supposed to do until, like he says, the offspring should come. The same offspring Paul just talked about, he spent 18 verses basically talking about the offspring of Abraham being the foundation of this promise. This is what the promise we're looking for, we're, we're waiting on. And he also says there's this mediator of the law, speaking of Moses, the one who gave Israel the law after God penned it to him. So God writes down the laws with his finger, and then Moses hands it to the people of Israel and says, Can you do this? All of Israel says, Yeah, we can do this. And as you read the Bill of Testament, you're like, well, no, they, no, they can't. They can't do this. And that's, that's why verse 20 comes in. It's, it's, it's really hard to translate. But woodenly it says, but the mediator is not one, God is one. You see in your ESV in verse 20, it says, now an intermediary implies more than one. Woodenly, it's the mediator, the mediator is not one. So Paul, in one verse, takes... All of biblical history, all of Old Testament history, the entire landscape of the drama, and says basically in effect, Moses was the first mediator, the first kind of mediator, and many followed after him. Lots of mediators followed after him. But God is one. So he's wrestling with this. There's lots of mediators and God is one. How can God's promise there will be one. The law given to Moses and then to Israel was mediated to God's people throughout history by prophets, by kings, by priests, waiting for someone who can fulfill it. 
lots of people came, tried to bring this to the people, but like, we, we can't do this. And God being one who he never changes his mind, never changes his plan, so his law can't change. Someone has to fulfill this, and they're, they're waiting. It's, it's definitely not these guys. We're waiting for somebody. So verse 21 makes a little more sense. If God employs both the law and the promise, you can say the law and the gospel, doesn't that assume that Paul had two plans? He's like, oh, the law didn't work, so we might as well give him a, a, a promise. We might as well give him a hope. Is, is, that what, is that what Paul is saying? Is that what God is doing? One thing didn't work, so plan B is Jesus. And Paul says, not at all. Because the purpose of the both is the purpose of both is the same. The means kind of how they get there is a, is a little bit different. See, the, the law is not bad. The law is not something we should look at and say, that's something we're not gonna follow, that's bad. That's Old Testament stuff, we don't really need it anymore. It's not defective. Just we can't obey it. Just ask something that we can't do. The law never really promised you anything. It said, do this, and then you'll live. It set forth life. It set forth, like, this is how you can earn it. If you want to try, go ahead. Go ahead and try to earn it. So the law doesn't make life, really. The law regulates life. This is how you should live. See, if the law could give you life, then you could be righteous through it. There actually be a way for you to do it. The law says, do, and you earn something back. Kind of like gift giving. Give a gift, and you can get a gift back. Or, you work, and you get a wage. The promise says, done, and live. You didn't work, you didn't do anything that you receive. But, I think even for us, it's, Though we like we believe this, it's it's hard for us to receive and rest harder than it is to work, to work and earn. Because we actually like we feel the work, we feel the earning. We're like I, I know that I'm doing this, I feel this, I'm getting the receipt of it. The tangibility, like of doing something, of sweating, of striving, that feeling you hopefully and, and rightfully get after a long day of work. Like I, I earned that paycheck. I got this. Spend 80 hours if you get bi-weekly paychecks that you need to live. You signed a contract with your employer. They agreed to give you a wage dependent on the work that you do for them. And it feels good. At the end of the week, you're like, I, I did a lot of work. I earned this money. This feels good. I think this is easy for us to understand. This work and then wage. This is very easy for us to understand. And yet the gospel says, receive and rest. It's, that's not naturally how we think. Our restless bodies and minds sometimes wander. We say, well, what do I do? I feel like I've got to do something, right? I think most cases, like I said, resting is harder than working. Working can be easy. And I'm the worst one to say this resting is, is hard hard for us to do 
And Paul, he's kind of dealing with this here. He's like, this, this resting in the gospel versus working, this is, this is actually kind of hard. It's hard for us to, to understand. So this law comes in to separate us. It, it increases this chasm, this unreachable barrier that we can't pass on our own to earn God's favor. But the law always pointed. It didn't stop at the chasm. It always pointed to the coming of faith. Saying the law can't do this, but it's pointing the one that can. This brings us to our second point, the coming of faith. So verse 2 keeps us going, and it's, it's remarkable. It says the first part, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. And you stop there and you wonder, what do I think comes next? Something bad. Prison under sin, therefore we can't do anything. But it leads to the second part, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. And Paul uses imprisoned another time in Romans 11. To describe God's giving over some to disobedience so that he might have mercy on others. And we're, we're thinking, how, how is that possible? How is it just for God to imprison some so that he can set others free? Thinking, God, God's lawful, God's just. How, how, do we, how do we keep this in check? What Paul's not saying is that some are stuck under the law and some kind of get to pass around the law. This law doesn't really kind of affect them. It hits some, it misses others. He's saying everyone actually does have to pass through the law. The question is, are you the one who's going to obey it? Or will you believe on the one who did? Being the law and understand it's, it's not negotiable. It's, it's that's what we have to work under. You are under the law. Are you going to go through it with yourself? Or are you going to go through it with another? So I'll state this a different way. The law either convicts you and places you under a curse, or the law guards you toward the day of Christ. The same law can do both things simultaneously. It depends on Who's doing it? Am I doing it or is someone else? So he continues his thought in verse 23 and is not contradicting what he said in verse 17. It says in verse 23, or it says in verse 17, the law came 430 years after the promise. But by talking of the person of faith, Jesus Christ, in verse 23, the promise did precede the condition. The giving of the promise did precede the condition. The gospel actually does come before. And the law is, is being used in a slightly different way, as is faith. The law is not being used in its condemnatory, which doesn't mean it doesn't have it. It just means it's not being used in this way. But it's as your guardian. You might be thinking, but how on earth can the law, which seems basically up until this point only to condemn me, now guard me? How is the same thing that condemns me now guards me? 
And like any good lawyer, as Paul was trained, or at least a great rhetorician, just a persuasive speaker, he anticipates your question. He's like, I, I know that's coming up. Because at the end of verse 23, he says, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. It's the beginning of verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So this, this guardian, in Paul's day, you can kind of think of today, was like a lovingly strict school teacher. Paul's day, a school teacher was hired by the parents of a child, usually someone who's relatively well off, to raise them and educate them. Essentially, they acted as the parents would. Because for a time, they kind of were the parents. They're, they're trained under these guardians. So the parents would hand them off with an order that when they receive the kids back, they'd be more mature and better taught. So while maybe not be readily apparent at all times, imagine being the kid under this guardian, the strict rule teacher. Imagine being them, and you likely hear something to the effect of, I know this is difficult, and I'm pushing you by disciplining you, but I promise it's for your good. So they, we, as we do, as they veer off the path, the teacher, knowing their purpose, the teacher's purpose, would correct them, realign them, and assure that they were progressing. And notice, too, the law, it doesn't cease. But actually, in a way, it passes the baton to Christ, like a good 400-meter relay runner passes the baton over to Christ. So in a sense, as Paul says kind of the same thing in verses 10 through 14, just a few verses earlier, the law exposes you and, and to your very core. It shows you precisely who you are. I think we wonder, like, who, who am I? Well, what am I doing? What am I supposed to do on this world? The law shows you, this is who you are. This is how far, far short you are from perfection. And at the same time, it's a loving reproof. A guardian for a time who shows you the right way, who guides you in the right path nudging you towards the true and perfect teacher, Jesus Christ. And too often, these, these aspects of what the law does are kind of pit against each other. Either there's one or the other. Two fighters in the ring, either the law condemns you or it lovingly reproves you. And we forget, for those in Christ, that it, does, it kind of does both. It's more like the dual aspect of the law. The law condemns you and only condemns you if you are outside of Christ. It never lovingly reproves you. It's not that loving, strict teacher. It's razor sharp and unendingly persistent. All it ever does is pushes down on you and says you can't do it because it knows you can't. Or the law reproves you if you are in Christ. I want to think if you have this little bet and it whacks you when you're doing wrong. It's now laid to your side and it's showing you which way to go. 
no longer hurting you, it's guiding you. It's pointing you in the direction you should now walk. So what changes its direction? From pointing at you to pointing to Christ. And Paul says it's Christ who is your justification by faith, who is, has given you perfection. So for now, as Paul says in verse 27, or verse 25, you are no longer under a disciplinarian pointing to your sin. But you have Christ who embraces you in love, who, yes, reproves you, but that reproof is not to condemn you. That reproof is to guide you. And this work, this giving, this gift giving to you by faith, now both reconciles you to God, who we need first and foremost, and unites you to the body. It does both at the same time. We need the vertical first, and then we get the horizontal after that. We'll move to point three, which is what this unification is, united by Christ. In verses 26 to 29, they're, they're absolutely incredible. This unification by faith through the work of Christ, it enters you, enters you into a society that's no longer defined by what you bring to it. Not, I'm who I am, I got this education, I come from this family background, I have this background, I'm looking towards this potential job, can, can I come in? It's not how hard you work for it. I had 17 years of law school, I made $400,000 a year, whatever it is. It's now you enter this new society. And is, is this not exactly what we all hope for? We all, like Paul said, we, we long to be accepted. We long to be part of a group of people who accept us for who we are. And we, we push for this, we work for this. We try to make ourselves into something to join another group and say, like, I want to be part of something. But as, as we're all too often familiar with, nothing in the world will do this for us. Nothing will just take us in and say, you come in with your sin and we're, we're good. We're together. We'll, we'll keep you. We'll watch over you. The closest we get to this is, is our family. And, and he actually says this too whether by blood or by adoption. And yet, even in our own families, have, have we not already experienced, to some degree or another, some sort of alienation, some sort of disapproval, and if not, some rejection? Like, even my own family, I'm not accepted in. And we look for a society like, who, who can I be accepted by? But now Jesus does not look for what you bring to it, but the fact that he brought you into it. That's what enters you into this new society that Paul's talking about. Because as Paul says, we are now sons. You believe in Christ, you are a son. You have a new family. Not a blood family, but a spiritual family. And he doesn't eliminate gender by saying sons as if as if he's saying men are superior in any way. But in terms of inheritance, sons inherited their father's estates. 
everything they own. So as a son, you inherit. You get everything the Father has. That's what this new society is. That's united by faith. You also inherit your father's standing in society. And our father being God has the highest standing and we inherit this from him. So we who have believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and perfect righteousness, all of us are now sons of God. We're now part of this family. You don't lose interest in this family. You're always in this family. In verse 27, the initiation into this family is given preeminence. It says, for as many as you, as you, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you remember back to the circumcision party in chapter 2, what were they trying to do? They say, if you get circumcised, you're made right with God. Not, God promised to incorporate you into the community through circumcision. Let alone the fact that they're in a new covenants, that Christ has already done his work. And they're saying, let's bring back all this old covenant stuff. They upheld the old covenant's initiation to this community. It was by circumcision as a promise, not as a condition. It was a promise. They forgot new covenant fulfillment. Christ came to fulfill this. And if you think about it too, circumcision is bloody. Stuff happens. Something is cut off. Baptism is cleansing. Something's actually put on. Nothing's cut off. The Judaizers who wanted to look at bringing the old covenant back, they said circumcision, but they really meant was all of the law. Let's add one little piece. But in reality, everything comes with it. Now, because of Christ's bloody and physical work under the law, we now get to experience cleansing power. We're not cleansed. Not cut off. We're cleansed. We now put on, as Paul says. We no longer cut off. So in verse 28... We're now all included in this new covenant community, this community of the promise, not the community of the condition. The circumcision party, those who try to add condition back in, want to separate and distinguish. So by putting on Christ by faith, all social distinctions, all labels, all backgrounds, all baggage is done away with. No longer you must have this background. You must have this kind of job. Or you have to come from this kind of family if you want to be accepted here. It's simply and only by faith in Christ who's given you perfection. You were inserted into this new community of those from all backgrounds. All backgrounds are invited in. All people are invited in. All walks of life. All these people with their differences that would separate them anywhere else besides the church are not all under Christ, are, are now all under Christ by the gift of faith. You see, when he's talking about these Jews and Greeks, 
Jews, like we saw in chapter 2, didn't eat with Greeks. Paul, or Peter, when he saw all these Gentiles coming, is like, I can't eat with you guys. Slaves wouldn't fellowship with those who were free. They were probably owned. Males and females wouldn't commune with each other. There were laws against male-female relationships. But in Christ, Paul says, this is wiped away. We don't all come to the table with our backgrounds. Not against our backgrounds, but with our backgrounds. They're not wiped away. And Galatians 3 ends precisely this way. Being of Abraham's offspring, those who inherit not a great physical land, but a spiritual one. This is our great hope. This spiritual land that we inherit. This is what grounds, Paul says, your new identity. This is who you are under Christ. You have a new identity, a new purpose, and I think most importantly, a new family. You have people around you who don't look at you and look at your background and say, have you put on Christ? Your family. We're, we're no longer defined by political affiliation, societal distinctions, family history, or these perceived kind of built-up personal identities, things that we want to feel that we belong. We're now defined by our status as offspring according to the purpose. Yeah, this can be as difficult to live in as it is to receive a gift without feeling, I have to do something now. What do I do? How do we then live in light of this gift? We can't give anything back, but there's something we can do. Above all, this gift is not something we just kind of stick in our pockets, use to purchase something else we want more. It's something we put on. Because those distinctions, that, those markers that formally separated us in verse 28, they're now the result of the clothes we crafted. Those distinctions are a result of the clothes we crafted. For our work results only in a curse under the law, separated by the Lord because of our sin. And we take on distinctions. So like, no, I'm, I'm separate. No, I'm separate. No, you can't, you can't be part of this. But this gift of Christ actually clothes us. It gives us new clothes. Crafted not by our hands, but crafted by the Father's hands. And then gives it to us to wear. Shared by the Son, Jesus Christ. And instead of us crafting and putting on our own stuff, now the Father crafts and the Spirit puts it on you. The Spirit clothes you now. And says, you are mine. You're part of this new community. And these clothes stick. They don't fall off. They're not tattered. You don't have to change them. They stick. They don't require payments. But gratitude. And thank you, Lord. A life lived in satisfaction. A life lived amongst this new community. We ask, believe upon Jesus Christ. Receive these new clothes. We're united to God through Christ's righteousness and others because now we all wear these clothes. We all share in this holiness and this righteousness.
Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you've done this for us. You've given us your righteousness. You've given us a gift we could never pay back. And all you require is our satisfaction, our gratitude, and our thanks. There's nothing we can do to pay you back. And this is, this is hard for us to just accept a gift that we know that we can't pay back. But this is the gift that, that we can live through and in light of. And may we live in light of this, knowing that your son's perfect righteousness has been given to us, and we can wear this, and this doesn't fall off us. We thank you, we praise you. All of this in your son's name. Amen.